0: Well hello everyone, hello there and welcome and thanks for being patient with us and really supporting us, sharing and you know when we're away we do other things that are important and we come together and then when we come together we really want and aspire to bring you only the best so that we can all contribute to what we don't want and then contribute to what we want to happen. Hold on one second. I could hear like an extra noise. Let's see. Okay, let's take that out and hopefully that would be good. All right. So I'm truly excited and honored and truly very happy to have John Waters for our guest today. And um, although I've heard John Waters before, but nothing like when I listened and viewed um the the episode of the thing, is like the local, local uh, group, that local conference that happened in Ireland sometime in February. And it was when Matthew Arith, who most of you know that he's been our guest with his wife, Cynthia Chong, and then John Waters showed up. And that was like a for me a moving episode that I said to myself, I've gotta have John Waters and invite him. And 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 just indulge me with my little memories of how I really appreciate Ireland, not just in its beauty, the scenic, but the people, the courage. Because when I first visited Ireland, I got excited when I saw like on the it's in Northern Ireland, not in the Ireland Dublin area. But there's this uh, wall that has the painting of Frederick Douglass, if my memory is correct. And of course, when I started listening more and hearing more the story of the pandemic, of the pandemic when it comes to famine, which is not really the uh, just like a. Uh, forced famine to the Irish people and I resonated to that because I come from the Philippines and I am also aware of how my country and my people got what became victims or in the midst of all these empires okay although most of us feel that we're victims but in each of our culture we have so much bravery and courage that it will never die. And even now, although the political and economic climate is constantly changing, and it seems like it's not changing for the better, but we are here to contribute so that we can make a better world. And if it doesn't happen on our generation, perhaps it could happen more for the little ones. So John, thank you for being here. And I I truly appreciate. I know you're busy and you're you're always there to speak about truth. So, here's what I also like when I went to his Substack, I like the way he wrote his definition of, of who he is just briefly. I'll just read it to you. And he said he is an Irish thinker, talker and writer. And for me, that's very vivid. It doesn't have to be just introducing him as a journalist because we know what journalists have been doing lately. No, they're not thinkers, they're not talkers and they're not writers anymore according to their um, honored code of journalism. So, and then he continues to write from the life of the spirit of society to the infinite reach of rock and roll from the puzzle of the human eye to the true nature of money, from the attempted murder of fatherhood to the slow death of the novel. He speaks and writes about the meaning of life in the modern world. So thank you for writing that. I love words. I always say I like to listen to lecture because I love words because words are powerful. So look at his last name. For me, that's powerful. Waters. And Waters encompasses the entire planet. So, his insights for me are powerful because that could mean that that's not only for Irish people, that's not only in Ireland, but for all of us. And in our body, we're 99% or over 99% waters. So, please, if you don't know him, get to know him and start listening. And thank you to the audience for subscribing thank you for sharing this and thank you for liking and thank you for doing your work wherever you are so now i give it to john to introduce more himself whatever he wants to share to the public
1: oh thank you very much grace uh you you said some very pertinent things you know it's very it was a really good introduction because i always dislike being introduced because people introduced me from Wikipedia, my Wikipedia entry, which is, uh, I, I I have never read it, but I believe it is pretty terrible uh, because people sometimes read it out in my presence and it is uh, profoundly embarrassing. But uh, I, I I think uh, I knew a politician once who had to employ three, poli- three people full time to rewrite his uh, Wikipedia entry every day as it was being re- rewritten by his enemy. So I can't afford to do that. But Thank you. Uh, I think yeah, thank you in particular for the way you handled the concept of journalism, because, of course, I was a journalist for 35 years. And and in a certain sense, you know, I could still own up to the idea of being a journalist in its pure form. But of course, you're quite right. I mean, the, the forum has become so corrupted, incredibly corrupted uh, in, in the past. Well, I don't know how many years exactly, but certainly in the last 40 months, three years and, and three months, say, or four months. Uh, It's it's quite unbelievable uh, the extent to which that corruption has occurred because what it has been is a, a really an inversion of the function of journalism from seeking to tell the truth at all times to simply telling lies at all times and and Uh, together with that then there's a secondary function which is to attack and demonize anybody who insists on telling the truth Uh, uh, and that's the function now of journalism, they have essentially flipped their business model and decided that okay we can't any longer make money from telling the truth but we can make money there's lots of people who have very wealthy interests that will pay us to tell lies and that's what we're going to do and the extraordinary thing is that the members of my former profession have continued as if nothing had happened. They continue in the same mode, behaving and speaking of themselves as though nothing had changed at all. That they were still doing the job that they had always done, and being quite outraged if you point out to them, "No, you—you're a liar. You are a paid liar. You are a professional liar," and—and—and and, and that's really what they are. So, I—I—I—and I, I'm very—I I think. Yeah, I am very uh, distraught, really, uh, at what has happened to journalism. Because when I was a boy, there was nothing else I wanted to be other than a journalist. You know, I I used to dream about the word journalist attached to my name, John Waters, journalist. Now it is a source of shame to me. I have to say, and and uh, this is a very sad thing. You know that that uh, what should be, you know, a kind of priesthood of our democracies, of our civilization has become the antithesis, has become the enemy of our civilization. Uh, so that's a very sad thing. But, so thank you very much for that introduction. And, and uh, I, I was a journalist, as I say, for 35 years and in, uh, in recent years with the Irish Times, which was at that time, the, the greatest Irish newspaper. It was very, very, a very good newspaper and, and quite very respected around the world. You know, notwithstanding that Ireland is a relatively small country, in fact, a very small country, but it was a very high quality newspaper on a par with the British newspapers or the best of the American newspapers when they were at their best. And now it's just a terrible uh, uh, rag, uh, which just puts out uh, propaganda for the government and for the pharmaceutical industry and so on. So uh, uh, I uh, started in, in, as a music journalist, a rock and roll. I was into music and, uh, in, in a big way as a young man. And uh, I started right out of that, about that. And, and I still write occasionally about that because uh, to me, it's very interesting. Uh, and in a way, it's, it's very interesting that in this, these present times, it is, has become visibly a, a two-edged sword. That we can see now clearly that there was a part that this music and played in the, in the lead-up, in the culture, in a very uh, uh, dam- damaging way, to the moment we have arrived at. And yet, it has still about it, in some instances, that sense of liberation, that sense of um, freedom and 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 the spirit, the spirit of man. You know that the music that derived from, you know, from so many different. Um, elements including you know obviously the 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 blues and the the the, the plantations of, of you know in which uh, the slaves chained to one another the chain gangs would holler to one another along the line and create these lines these songs and that that was the origin of the of the blues but there was also uh, in rock and roll other elements including irish music which traveled the world have I mean, as you said grace you know our people were displaced by Famine, what is called famine, but which is actually genocide, let's be honest. And, and uh, uh, so it's, a, it's always been very important to me to uh, find, w- to speak about this music in its intensity, you know, not just as some kind of uh, adornment on our, you know, entertainment or uh, what you might call a diversionary thing, that it was something of the spirit of the people. Uh, when it was good, and some of the great artists in this form have been among, I think, the greatest artists uh, in the world. You know, in fact, for at the moment we have the greatest. I think one of the greatest artists in the world in any discipline is Van Morrison, the the great singer from Belfast and and songwriter. Uh, you know, he he has been for fifty years like one of the premier uh, artists in this in this uh, genre, and and uh, he. Really interestingly, he immediately in 2020, almost uniquely at that moment, came out against the lockdowns also. And this is very telling and a source of great pride to me that that he, a true artist, recognised this moment. And But just as I suppose, I suppose important to stress is that almost nobody else did at that time. And that's really a dismal uh, confession to have to make that in so many ways, the music had become purely diversionary, purely entertainment and, uh, you know, irrelevant, really. So that's kind of a brief sketch of me and uh, where I fit in and and, uh, in my country. My country is in a a dreadful state now. it is really not a country anymore. To be honest, it's a corporation, or they are trying to make it into a corporation, and turn and change its branding. You know, take turn it into some kind of multicultural island. You know that, you know, uh, belongs to everybody except, of course, the indigenous population. They have no rights to speak at all now. Uh, we are, you know, pushed into a corner and uh, 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 disrespected, and our culture is being sold to the world. And we are told that anybody can. Become Irish by just getting off an airplane, and and uh, uh, and making the claim that they are Irish. So therefore, Irish being Irish has no cultural meaning anymore. So on. So these these are heartbreaking things that are happening, and they are all connected. You know, to me, they're all connected in the sense that, uh, you know, I I have one of the interesting things I think about all of this has been, and in, in a certain sense, a positive thing. Um, I would have said that maybe ten years ago even five years ago, uh, my life had really kind of become somewhat directionless, I mean, professionally. I, I kind of journalism was running out of steam. It was losing its attraction. It was losing its, its integrity. And I, I was beginning to regret ever having become a journalist. And then this thing happened and in, in, in uh, spring of 2020. And in, almost immediately I recognized it as almost the purpose of everything. You know, that it's almost like at this moment that our lives, not just for me, but for many people, I think, our lives suddenly became like a real story. That, that we were at the culmination. We had reached this culmination in our lives uh, uh, at this moment of a story that we had not recognized as a story. But now it is. It's, it's, it's beginning to, to, we have reached the denouement and we are, you know, uh, heading towards the, the absolute culmination of this story. And, and I believe for that reason that I feel passionately that very hopeful although not always optimistic I feel very hopeful that that in those circumstances we can only be victorious because that's what stories are like you know and 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 uh, I, uh, evil will not triumph in this story I'm convinced of that but I, what I'm not certain of is that the people who the evil people who are doing what they're doing is that uh, that they won't in the process of trying to do achieve their ends that they won't actually destroy the world i don't i can't be sure of that but i can can be certain that they will not be victorious
0: i i can say for myself that sometimes that's how i also feel i i always have that um empowering um urge that, I, I shouldn't stop anything that I'm doing that I know will help. Although I can feel the fastness. The magn- it's like, it's like a, you, at some point I could ask myself, okay, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But then at the same time, what else do I have to do? And be proud of myself in the future and say, hey, I was a part of this. It's in, um, I like when you made a mention about music it, it, that could be a whole episode, also, on knowing what happened with the music industry. At one point, Jan, I was following this um, music journalist, and I can resonate to him, him in his writings. when he he was sharing all his experience. But then when 2020 came, he bought the whole narrative. That was it. That was the end of my following him. So I said, okay, I'll put you on pause because he just bought the entire narrative. He seemed to have forgotten that in his little writings in journalism, there was already that uh, manipulation, fabrications for all some of these musicians, especially those who are under... Privilege or that doesn't have as much influence. So that was like crazy, like that. And and then you bought that, um, yeah, yeah, journalists will say, okay, if they don't make money. So let me then continue by um with your recent article, and you had a video and interview that says money for bad sake. And you started with your article by saying. An epidemic of fake money is just about the worst thing that can happen to a society because it embraces the possibility of just about every other bad thing you can imagine. And then, uh, and then you conclude it. So I'm just I just got your, the beginning and your conclusion. And I just want you to just have the the your creativity and the power and how you want to share more to us and to our audience. And in your conclusion you said that the money perverter desire and evil are truly linked with each other. So and you know everyone is really quite worried about what's happening financially. So do you want to share more your insight to that? What what does really bad sake mean when you wrote it?
1: Uh, well, uh, it's it's a kind of a pun on the line "Money for God's sake." I think it was a band called Ten CC had a song a line uh, "Money for God's sake." You know, so it's, this is "Money for Bad's sake." It, it, it it's it's the inversion of the purpose of money. Really, is what's happening, and I think this is actually central to everything that has been happening for the last few years, um, because you see, we we don't really think about money. We haven't think, thought about very much about money. I mean, culturally. As 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 communities, as a civilization, we we just assume that money is what it always was, and that it it moves through our event to our to the channels of our society and our economy in a certain way, and that that it, it, it. Simply is a neutral phenomenon, as it were, that it responds to to human desire and human effort, and 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 uh, it provides measure and reward, and all, as it always did. But of course, what has happened to our money system is that it has become. It's a long story, but essentially, in the kind of money systems that we have now in the West, they are they're disconnected from the original meaning of money, which was to make a direct connection between. The uh, process of production, the work, and the produce, and to measure that, so gold became the, the measure of everything. Gold was the ideal money for various reasons. One was that it was en- enduring; it had it didn't lose weight. It, it it maintained a steady correlation between itself and and the the, the activities and, and goods that it represented, and. Uh, but in, about 70 years ago, when money was disconnected from the gold standard, we had you know, a totally different kind of money, which was thereafter created as debt, that money was shifted to being generated when somebody borrowed money. And this was simply created on a screen by a banker. And uh, the, as a debt, and that debt became the asset of the bank until it was put, it was repaid. And when it was repaid, the money was just simply wiped away. Um, and this has had a huge effect in our culture without us being aware of it, because, of course, when you introduced in the concept of interest into this, you are immediately creating more debt than there can possibly be money ever to repay it. So what has happened is that the, the, the debts of our societies have ballooned. And if you look at the correlation now on any graph of the United States or Europe or any other, any economy essentially, pretty much in the world, you see the lines of productivity are, uh, are moving a little bit higher than, than, than you know, horizontal there. It's, but, but the, the, the debt uh, spike is, is, is vertical virtually. So it has deviated from any relationship between what we do, what we make, what we produce, what we, you know, what we are worth, uh, uh, or what we are, uh, our value to ourselves or to our, to our countries is, is being completely distorted. And, and what, the only thing you can conclude about this, you know, in this context is that we are borrowing money from, not from, our, not from ourselves or each other, not even from our children, not even perhaps from our children's children, but from our children's children's children. That's how that's how, you know, so when we drive a car, this is really an appalling thought. If we buy a new car, this car really belongs to our children's children's children because they will have to pay for it. And and, and this is this is a this is fundamentally at the back of what's happened. I mean, there are other elements. There is an elite who obviously are related to this because of their, their obsession with wealth and their desire to own everything. And to control everything in this, you know, because money and power are int- int- intimately linked. Uh, but the timing of this has been entirely to do with the, the collapse of our systems, which have become overblown with debt and are no longer capable of continuing. And, and of course, they plan now to replace all that with a central bank dig- digital currency, a global currency, which will essentially imprison all of us in, in, in uh in calipers, uh, in digital calipers, where we will be unable to walk, to, 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 to move beyond a certain place. We will not be unable to spend what we think is our money because they will decide if and when we can spend it uh, or you know if we will even have it. And so, so that's what I mean about money. But there's another factor as well, which is that in this death phase of the old system, there's been an extraordinary phenomenon that nobody anticipated, I don't think, which is that it's almost like if, a, if an individual were to be given you know, a year to live, and they had quite a bit of money, perhaps. And so they decided, "Well, look, I'm going to be dead in the year's time, so I'm spend all my money. We're essentially, they are essentially making what is called money and spreading it all over the place. And they are buying people. They are corrupting people. They are corrupting institutions. They are imposing destructive policies on their own countries with this money. You know, for example, for many years in Ireland, like for 10 years since the collapse of 2008 and the the period thereafter, at least a dozen years perhaps, there has been a huge housing crisis in Ireland where many, many tens of thousands of Irish people cannot get houses. And they have been living in uh, you know, bedsits or hotel rooms uh, subsidized by the state and so on with families and children and so on. And and the government says there's nothing we can do about this. But now they are importing hundreds of thousands of migrants from Africa and everywhere. And there is a no end of money there's no limit to the amount of money they can have to to buy houses, to build houses, you know to, for the, for these people. And still they are refusing to build any or to provide any houses for the indigenous population. This is this the remarkable thing. So there you have a clear illustration of the distinction between what you might call real money or uh, an approximately real money, because it wouldn't even be real money anyway, because it hasn't been, as I said, for 70 years. But there's some kind of ethic there that says, well, no, money is a scarce commodity. So therefore, we cannot simply spend it on buying houses for our own people. But over here, we have a different quantity of money. And this is a money that is not money. It's like a toy town version of money. But accept that its consequences in the real world in some contexts are real in the sense that a debt accrues from it. And that debt will be handed on to our children's children's children. But meanwhile, there's no shortage. And, you know, so if you no matter what you say that any obstacle that might present itself for the policies they want to implement, no matter how destructive they are, whether they're LGBT pride parades or mass migration, hundreds of people being imposed on a tiny village uh, who have, with no resources. Suddenly, the resources are made available for the migrants, but not for the people. And so, so this is what I mean about the money for bad sake. It's not, it's, not, it's not money in any meaningful neutral sense. It is money as really an instrument of war. A war against the indigenous peoples of, of the nations, particularly of the West, because the West is, is, of course, what they really need to conquer most of all, because that's where, you know, I suppose you could say the civilization that has defined the eras that the last century emanated from the from, from from the West. And for that reason, they want to simply subdue the, the West and to create a world that they can control completely absolutely uh, in the future so that's that's really i think a sketch of it's a much more complicated and and and, and very interesting uh, area because really as i say it's you know i had no idea 10 years ago you know I, I kind of thought of money in a lazy way but but money is not what we think it is not money is not what it seems to be uh, and it can be used for to cause great harm, and so we see in this the the, the 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 suddenly in a new light, perhaps the the meaning of that phrase. You know, money is the root of all evil, because in this you can absolutely see. Because I think you know, in in the pandemic, so-called pandemic, you know, it, people were being paid in the UK. People were being paid eighty percent of their income to stay at home and do nothing, right? Now, this is really interesting, 80%. So now we have a situation in the United Kingdom where they have two things which shouldn't come together. One is uh, a huge unemployment and a scarcity of workers. And they can't, so the economists are unable to explain it. Well, I can explain it very simply. It's simple, very simple. If you give 80 people 80% of their income to do nothing, to stay at home for two years or two and a half years, and you didn't ask them to go back to working for 100% of their income, that means that they're working for 20% of their income, really, in their minds, at deep, at a deep level in their in their uh, psychologies. And when you didn't factor in things that they now have to, again, pay for uh, bus fares and train fares and, and lunches and so on, uh, and then you take into account the, amount, the inflation that has occurred over the three years, which has been you know maybe 15, 20% minimum, you think, well, why would they get out of bed to work for nothing compared to what they were able to do two years ago? This is, so this is an example, again, of how money can be used in, to, destroy, uh, to destroy enterprise, to destroy endeavor. I mean, they've, they've destroyed thousands, tens of thousands of businesses in the, in the last four, three two and a half years. and um, they've, inter- they've created an economy which is corporation-friendly. Uh, they don't want small operators anymore because they're not easy to regulate. Corporations will do as they're told because they can then use the power of government to, uh, to achieve their designs. And so these all these things are part of the same set of phenomena, and, and, and I think very much part of the totalitarian model that's now emerging, uh, where money will be central, central bank, bank digital currency, combined with mass surveillance, Social credit schemes, which schemes which will actually, you know, monitor each individual's uh, uh, behavior, uh, environmentally, socially, uh, governmentally, they say, you know, that means legally or whatever, you know. So, you know, if you if you uh, accidentally or absentmindedly were to be on a, a public transport on a train, for example, and, and accidentally put or unthinkingly put your feet up on the other seat across from you, and and the CCTV camera saw you, you could find that the following week you would arrive at the airport to go uh, on your holidays and be told, sorry, no, no, you, you have uh, acquired uh, a penalty for putting your feet on the seat in the train. So now you cannot travel, for example. This kind of thing, and 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 they would be able to turn off our money at at source uh, if we displeased them in any way. You know, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, there's a guy called uh, Larry Fink. I, I I talk about him a lot. Uh, people may have uh, heard of him. He is the CEO of BlackRock, which is the biggest hedge fund management company in the world. And Larry is very direct about all this. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't uh, bother with, being pol- with politeness right there. He simply says that uh, democracy is old-fashioned. It, it, is, uh, it is no longer suited, suited to the needs of modern capitalism. He says totalitarianism is better. Because democracy, he says, isn't very messy. People have opinions, different opinions. And they're not his opinions, Larry's. How could they possibly tolerate this? That you would have a different opinion to Larry Flint? My goodness, you know, this has to stop. So clearly, this is the endeavor. This is part of what is going on. All of these things are converging. What happened in March of 2020 had nothing to do with, in case there's anybody left in the world who doesn't know this, this had nothing to do with your health. Nothing. Nothing to do with it. It was to do with your wealth. Stealing your wealth. Controlling your life. And in some instances, ending your life. Because many people died already not from COVID, but from the machinations that were employed to achieve all this.
0: Thank you, John. And I'll pass it on to another Irish man, Roy.
2: Thanks, Chris. Hi, John. I I mean, based on kind of all you were saying, like if we look at what happened in Ireland with the property thing, because Tom Darcy, I'm not sure you're familiar with his writings, but. Now, he was able to show that the bank was, the AAB was insolvent and just the corruption of the judges. I personally, I was in the high court with my properties and I saw all of the judges were corrupt, 100 percent. And it turns out a lot of them were in default and obviously were bribed. I know you took a case yourself, weren't successful, but I take my hat off of you for actually doing it. You might let people know about what you were trying to achieve regarding the lockdown.
1: Yeah, uh, we did. I, I I agree with what you say there. I I think I think yes, we took a, myself and Gemma Doherty, another former journalist, uh, took an action challenging the lockdown, and we took it really on the basis. I think you know it was very strange because we took it on the basis that quite obviously this 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 couldn't be done. What they were doing, what they were proposing, was impossible because the Irish Constitution doesn't permit any of this. Um. It, it was unthinkable that that in Ireland, a free country, a country that, you know, it, 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 its soil had been soaked in blood for centuries to achieve a freedom uh, that we achieved a uh, 100 years ago or so. And, and uh, that this could, so you could then re- wake up one morning and, and go out about your business and be uh, stopped by a policeman who asked you why you were out of your house. This was unthinkable. So we went to the court and and we thought we went in the spirit of assuming that that of course we would be trampled to death in the rush of liberals to to fight for freedom and to do the same and probably do it much better than we would be able to do it maybe some of them would be lawyers or would have access to legal advice and so on we were representing ourselves but we, we put together a case which you know we we think was and we thought and still I still think was was a very adequate case to have examined and to have the principles uh, of the constitution applied to what was happening and, and and test the the validity and and the legality of it uh, but you know uh, it's quite amusing because the courts, uh, the media, the, 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 the media reported not what was in our papers, but what there were certain throwaway comments from the floor of the court by us or, or remarks from the judge and so on. This is generally what got reported. So it gave a certain uh, view of, of uh, this, which, they, which the media were instructed to put across. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of option, the, the general sense conveyed was that there was nothing whatsoever of merit in our case. And that it was absolute nonsense, you know. And, uh, okay, well, you see, the process that we deliberately got into was, uh, in the first instance, uh, an ex parte process. So we went into a courtroom in front of a judge and the purpose of with was our papers. And the idea was, of that is, that the judge simply takes your papers, he go, he leaves through them, reads them, no, or at least peruses them, shall we say, briefly, and he decides A or nay, yes or no. So it's either, he says, yes, there's a case here, prima facie, in other words, it is not, it's not idiotic, it's not in green biro as the traditional, you know, depiction of these things might be. Uh, and therefore it has, it can continue on to the full process and we will then uh, alert the other side and we will begin a process. So that could have happened, that, such a hearing would have taken maybe seven, eight, 10 minutes, right? Now, they told us that there was nothing in our papers. And, you know, I would have, okay, if there was nothing, well then the judge should have been able to see that in, in a matter of five minutes, reading our papers. Our, our, our case, we never actually got to the, we were looking for a judicial review. We never got that there. But our case nevertheless went on across three levels of the court system. The High Court, the Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court. Something like uh, 13 to 15 hearings, a dozen judges, 30 hours of hearing time, uh, countless lawyers on the other side, barristers and so on. And it took all of this time and two and a half years it took for them to decide what that judge on day one, if there was nothing in our papers, would have decided on the very first day in five minutes. So that, that's, what you say there is exactly right. I mean, the system is completely bought and paid for. We, we, we kind of instinctively and intuitively knew this from the very beginning, to be honest. you know, Let's be frank about it. Uh, we, you know, part of what we were trying to do was simply do it and do it in, in a visible way to dramatize what would happen to 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 say look but you see the problem is that 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 we live in a culture now that is so completely corrupted that in a certain sense that was a foolish errand because the 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 intermediary of the media the the journalists so twist everything that the public don't get to understand what actually is happening you know, so you know the result of it was that I was shouted at in the street for two years. I still get shouted at, actually, abusively when I when by people who don't know anything except what they're being instructed to say by the media, by the television station RTE, or by the Irish Times, my former newspaper, or the Irish Independent. So, so this is an important thing that I think we should return to this the nature of the corruption which is quite fantastic actually you know the, the, that it's something we we haven't really got our heads around yet the extent of which when you corrupt an entire the entirety of a media how different everything is because you you don't simply have a corrupt media there in the sense that they're not telling the truth what you have is somebody something there the place is occupied but it's occupied by an imposter. And, and, and people look, as it were, to the sentry post, you know, to say, well, is the sentry on duty? Okay, he's there. He's there. It's safe. I can sleep now. But this the, the sentry is an imposter. This is the worst possible scenario. So that's really... So, yes, right. the, 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 corrupt, the, the system, really, you know... There was a famous case in, 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 in Britain, uh, in, as you, you'll know, the Birmingham Six case in the 1980s, uh, where the Birmingham Six men were wrongly convicted for a bombing in Birmingham, and they spent many years in jail. And there was one famous or rather infamous judgment uh, by the rather infamous and notorious Lord Denny, in which, which became known as the Appalling Vista Judgment where he he dismissed their appeal at one point and he said that that this for this case to succeed would mean that the entire the entirety of the police force was corrupt and that the prosecution service was corrupt and that the jud- judiciary was corrupt and that the edifice of the British state was corrupt and then he paused and he said this is such an appalling vista that all right thinking people must agree that this case should go no further. Now, that's a really interesting and chilling statement because he wasn't actually saying, I don't believe. There's two different interpretations that you see them in a slightly different way if you just shift your head. One is the idea that, well, you know, the idea of suggesting that all these edifices are corrupt is, is rather implausible. And that is the, the 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 burden you need to discharge in order to to release these men to find them not guilty. Therefore, you know they can't not they can't not be guilty. They must be guilty because this couldn't possibly have happened. That's that's one interpretation. But I don't think that's what he meant. What he meant was that I, I don't really care if the police is corrupt or the prosecution service is corrupt. Or if the judiciary is corrupt or if the entire state is corrupt it doesn't matter it matters a great deal less than the consequences of releasing these men which is that we bring the state into disfavor into we we discredit the state in public and it doesn't matter therefore whether it's true or not the 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 price that these men are paying is a price well worth paying from the viewpoint of society. An injustice like this is worth, is better, far better than the alternative. That's what he meant. And this is really, that's what I, so in this case, I choose to talk about this in our case, about the appalling vista, that the idea that we would expose the Irish state in the corruption of the, the COVID scam and the lies they were telling, the, the way they orchestrated the parliamentary process in order to pass these uh, illegal, unlawful laws, and so on. If we had succeeded, it was impossible, of course, for the very same reason that Lord Dinian articulated, that nobody, it didn't matter what, what, what we said, it didn't matter what happened, it didn't matter how many people died as a result of the lockdown, or, or failed to get treatment, or anything, or committed suicide, or lost their businesses. No, 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 none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered was the state be vindicated at any cost. And that's essentially what courts are there for. That's their job. It's not to, to, to enforce justice or to to provide justice or or, or to supervise over a justice system. They're there as goalkeepers for the state.
2: And you mentioned about the master court, you know, the master judge to see would it go to the jury to, to go to trial. I mean, when I was in court, in the high court, there was, I don't know, 100, 150 people that he, as you say, he's just picking up a file. Half the time he doesn't know what's going on and making a decision whether it goes to court or not and people's homes and lives. And I saw people like saying their husband had died, committed to, I'm sorry about that, ruled in favor of the, the bank plus interest plus bank. And that went on. And then he, even in the court case, it was the same thing. It was such a strange situation because normally you have you know, both sides represented. But this is, you're in a room with barristers, the top of the, you know, the solicitors, like, I don't know, some of them charging 10,000, fighting lay litigants because they hadn't a penny to their name. Then we got yes. the bailout. The bailout was supposed to be kind of protecting everybody. So they got all the money. Everybody is then personally liable for their houses. They've evicted people. There was women with children living in cars and on the street. I mean, even when I went back last month, I used to never see much homelessness in CORK. It's littered with it. When I went to Dublin during the cases that I had, all around government buildings, the amount of people that were living homeless. And you mentioned it, they bring in all the refugees and like from the Ukraine and everything. And I mean, I understand if it's a, a, a worn-torn area and you have a mother and child coming in. But there's a lot of military men coming into these areas and they're being housed while our own are still on the streets. And, yes. you know, that's the, the the corruption that's going on. So just kind of leading on to that, because I know you've been talking about this from a long time. And I believe it's the destruction of the family is obviously the money, but the destruction of the family. And you've been talking, fighting for father's rights for a long time. And I even see it here that. Fathers have no rights. And basically, it doesn't matter if a relationship splits. Once they've got equal custody, the child has got the right support around it. But it's always in favor of the woman. And I'd like you to touch on that because that's an international thing that I'm seeing.
1: Yes, that's very interesting because I was going to bring that up in a slightly different context. But but it's actually precisely the context is is what you say. That um, there was a process. I wrote about this for 30 years, uh, uh, the brutalization of fathers in family courts. And particularly, I mean, you're talking in these contexts generally about separated, divorced fathers, or indeed unmarried fathers, as so kind of as I put it, uh, premarital or postmarital. And, but one of the things I, I really found extraordinary about that, not just uh, in, in writing about it, about the experiences of others, but actually having an experience of it myself, was that it was a really a criminal process. Even though technically it wasn't, it, it, de facto it was that the, the, the man was criminalized in the system and treated as a pariah and treated as, as an object of, of contempt by the courts. Uh, it is quite staggering. I often used to say, in my own personal experience, you know, that I was in the Royal Court of Justice. You know, I could be in over for a hearing in the middle of the week, uh, in December, for saying and. and uh, you know, be treated in this way by courts and, and and judges and so on, just contemptuously, and and then come back and and, and arrive back at my house in Dublin and and find a, a Christmas card from the president, because. You know, I was a well-known journalist, a respected journalist in Ireland. But for the past few days, I had had no respect at all at any level, as a human being even. And this is, this is something that I have found really extraordinary about the present time, is that it, what I, one way that I, feel, I certainly feel it, it's visceral to me, that what I see in the demeanour of politicians now is the same thing, the same viciousness that I saw in the demeanour of judges back then. The whole system now seems to be behaving in this, that same way towards the entire population, towards their entire populations, and you know that's 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 really you know you know when the, when you, when you think about it, and you think about the corruption about it, that the, what's really going on is, I think, an attempt to basically cover up immense, unimaginable corruption that has been occurring for decades in our societies, arising from this fake money, arising from the opportunities. Because one of the things that happened was that money ceased to be really at all about labor, work, effort, and became really just the dominant, the, the, the chips on a on a, on a on a gambling table. That the, the, the stock market and bond markets and all this, this were these were the, the, the location of real wealth making. And the concerns for which for which economics came into being in the first place which is to to provide means of exchange or people could exchange their labor and get the means the wherewithal to live and a roof over their heads and you know the, the, you know all these things were just dismissed and they became just simply pieces on the board to be moved about and the people became invisible uh, except when they were being kicked in the in the head by the judicial system or whatever or the banking system and, and really what they're doing now is actually using all of this to co- make, create the ultimate cover-up. And you can even see that now in the, what we saw in the last uh, 15 months or so uh, in relation to Ukraine. Because clearly they have been trying, and I, I mean the West, the Western powers, the United States, NATO, the, the EU, they have been trying essentially to start World War III. And I believe they are trying to start World War III in order to create the ultimate alibi for the crimes they have committed with regard to money and and power in our societies. These are criminals beyond our modest imaginations in this area uh, to to conceive of the extent of their evil and the extent of their, their, their ruthlessness and the extent of their viciousness. I think that you know we are only beginning to see now in glimpses the, the glitter of their fangs that, that we see sometimes in the demeanour of somebody like Trudeau in Canada or, or, or Radker in, 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 in Ireland or Macron in, in, in France or that appalling woman in New Zealand, whatever. She's gone now. God help us. Thank, you. Thank God. Or the, the criminal Nicholas Sturgeon who has been arrested now uh, they, 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 they're all the same kinds of people. You see, they're all the same. They, they have been chosen for their mediocrity, and it's a grave insult. I apologize to mediocre people. It's a grave. It's but it's the best we can do. This is t- these are beyond, below, beneath mediocrity, but they are that because they are the they are chosen because they are so lacking in in vision, intelligence, or ability that they will do anything to cling to jobs that they never deserved in the first place they have that capacity to be utter slaves to their masters and their puppet to their puppet masters uh, because well if they didn't do this they would be stacking shelves in tesco you know and and and, and that goes for a lot of the when you actually look at the so called the, so-called, uh, the uh, meritocracy you look at the judiciary, look at the bench look at the quality of people that we, we see now going to the the top of the legal systems. Everywhere, journalism, the same. Even something like novels or novel writing, the great potential writers don't don't really get a look in anymore because it's all the mediocrities, because they offer no threat and they will not challenge. And and, and, and science is on it. We have three and a half, 40 months now of silence from the artistic community and from the legal community and from every single community that you can think of. Has been silent. There have been occasional, you know, whistleblowers. There have been occasional people coming out to say, "Enough! No, this is this cannot be happening. This cannot happen. This cannot be allowed to happen." But there are so few and so far between that uh, you you can see the the, the, the the way that the society was uh, was nurtured in this way into a, a, a demeanor of mediocrity. Precisely, so that this could this coup could be executed uh, efficiently. And
2: just finally, before I pass it to Hartman, because with like say the censorship, Grace got kicked off YouTube. I got kicked off ages ago, and I got kicked off Linktree, and even I just I saw my numbers going back on YouTube, my other channels, as well as you know Facebook interactions, going from a couple of hundred to zero, which is kind of normal, but. Like one, I'd like to know your own kind of censorship, but the free speech that they've kind of trying to stop now at the moment, the kind of bill that they're going through in Ireland at the moment, that they can take your phone or whatever, you might kind of, because that's going to be replicated around the world. They're just, we're like a trial basis for that.
1: Yes, that's right. That is, the the weird. these are are simply uh, templates that are being circulated by all of the, the G20 countries and so on. And they're called hate speech laws. And, and they're being introduced, you know, in Ireland, you know, we're being accused of racism. We didn't ever have a race problem until they imported it. You know, they import a race problem and then they call us racists. You know, like, and they, they, they bring people in and they just don't bring them in. They, they, they search, they scour the world. They advertise around the world looking for people, offering them tens of thousands uh, of, of euros worth of property or cash. To come to Ireland while they're starving their own people and their, their 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 hospitals, their emergency units are completely inert. I was in one myself uh, a couple of weeks ago and for five hours and nobody in the waiting room got attended to. Nobody. This is at night time. And I left in the end without anybody having been attended to. So this is the kind of way they cut these people re- regard, you know. But the hate speech, you know, it's it, it's basically an attempt to put the final uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about what I call two things. Uh, one is mutism, which has been imposed on, on our society by culturally, by pol- political activism, particularly by the LGBT, what I call the LGBT goons who are there, whose function in all this was to intimidate the population and, make, and silence them so that they wouldn't any longer be able to know if it was safe to say anything. And that's actually happened to the Irish population. Probably the most garrulous population in the world for centuries has now been reduced to kind of, you know, kind of, you know, mealy mouthed kind of, you know, if you say something to an Irish person now and they'll be looking around them to see if there's anybody listening and they'll say, oh, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, you can't say much now about that. <laughs> you know, like, and, and another word I have for that is lockjaw, national lockjaw. And and that's what they want to complete that now by this, because this will actually this be what the purpose of this is really to make you your own censor, because the definitions are so vague and the mechanism is that the person who will prosecute you will be the person who feels offended. So it's an entirely subjective measure and there's no nothing for a judge to go on so if the person is offended the person is offended therefore you the offender and therefore you're guilty therefore you go to jail that's the deal right and in order to achieve this as you said there they can actually immediately once a complaint has been made come to your house get a warrant from a judge come to your house seize all your electronic devices keep them for an unlimited period forever if they want and use these against you in court And you have to then, you are guilty until proven innocent, until you prove that you didn't intend to offend the person. And how do you do that? So it's the end of democracy, it's the end of free speech, and it's the end, actually, also of equality before the law, because this divides populations into two. The favoured, the people with, you know, what they call um, uh, 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 protected characteristics. That means, you know, your face, your your skin colour, your uh, of a particular kind, uh, your uh, uh, sexuality, uh, your your gender, your also so on, right? your sexual preferences, and so on. Uh, therefore, you, you do, they will be favoured by the law. They will be privileged because they will have the power to prosecute people who are not protected. In other words, and the, the, of course, at the, the centre of that is the the. the straight white Christian male. You know, I often say that, you know, he, he will have a minus points in this league to begin with and will only go downhill after that. Uh, and, and that's the purpose of it is to, to, to neuter men, to emasculate men, to silence them, but also to silence indigenous populations and to make them strangers in their own countries. So they will be there shtom, they will be watching their country being destroyed by outsiders. And are unable to speak against it because that would be racist.
2: Yeah, perfect. Listen, John. thoroughly enjoyed everything. Pass you on to Hartman. Thank you. Thank you, Rob.
3: John, thank you so much. My pleasure. And uh, uh, you talk about a lot of subjects. Um, let's start. Let's start with journalism. Yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, I like to discuss the situation with the military uh, with the Greek military dictatorship from 1967 to 1974, and, for example, the Vietnam uh, Vietnam War from 1955 to 1975. And the interesting thing is that in both cases, also in the United States, especially in the 70s, the journalism was so good and so fast, bringing the truth out uh, to the public, that. The politician polit, uh, the political decision could not be carried by the by the people anymore yeah for example um, in the Greek uh, concerning the Greek di- dictatorship uh, the journalists brought the brutality of the of the dicta- dictatorship to the public so that the European Union says okay we cannot accept a dictatorship in the European Union anymore we have to change it so the European Union, forced Greece to become a democracy. The same in the end of the war, of of, of the Vietnam War, the the journalists brought the cruelty of the war to the living rooms of the Americans. And so there was no support of the people anymore for the government to do this. Yes. this was, let's say, this one. This in in this case, the journalists they were responsible for the task as the publication for the publication of the truth to the people. And we have the uh, judicial. You have we have the legislative. We have the judicial, and we have the executive. We have the government who makes the laws. We have the judicial who implements the laws in the state, and we have, for example, the police who. Execute the laws, and in the moment that the journalists do not bring the truth anymore to the people in the in the in in the countries, in that moment, um, no government can function anymore. It's it's impossible. And would you would you do you uh, would you see it as a high treason of the journalists that what they do right now?
1: Yes, I would. Uh, I, I quite. I, I agree. I think uh, with, with what you're saying there, uh, and I, I think that it's it's um, it's probably the most egregious uh, aspect of all of this. It, it, it would not have. Been, uh, this would not have happened. Uh, it would not have happened if journalists had been honest. Uh, you know, there's no question in my mind about that harp. I mean, I think that you you know uh, you can't imagine that, for example, you know, in the old days, if governments started to lie and visibly lie, journalists would be immediately attending the press conferences, pounding them with questions, harassing them, haranguing them. Their articles the next day in the paper would be exposing the lies, asking questions. None of this happened in this period. It has, started, it has ceased to happen. And when that happens, you have really a license to behave in whatever way the, the politicians can believe, behave in any way they like. And you see, the the the, the, the relationship between the citizen and the journalist is very interesting because the, the citizen looks to the journalist as a as as his watchdog. And it, you know, he when when the journalist is behaving normally in the course of something, he looks to say, What is the reaction of the journalist? You know, he's is he is he alarmed? Is he is he angry? Is he is he worried? Is he you know? And and when they look at the journalists, and the journalists is just you know say, oh yeah, this is fine. all oh, this is this is no problem. You know, there's a serious pandemic, so they can do what this is all very acceptable. You know, uh, you know, then the public gradually begin to believe that that this is the case. That it, if they have any reservations, then those reservations are some quirk of their own. You know, some peculiar, you know bad thinking wrong think of their own and, and uh, so so you 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 have this uh, strange situation where as i say the the media is there but not there it's a, occupying the place so nobody else can move into it and say no we're the pe-. in fact there is a media you know right right here you know you what we do it's there but nobody knows about it but the other thing then what they do what the media do is they they help to cr- construct a groupthink scenario and this is very important because groupthink you know is, is, is the, the whole process of uh, 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 there was a man called Janis Irving uh, who invented who, who the thinking on this he he developed this thinking and he described the process and the most important thing about a group you can create uh, 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 foment a particular mentality in a group quite a large group, maybe even a nation to mass formation and so on mass hypnosis. But the most important thing is at a certain stage that you create an out group you create a group that is opposed to the in group which discru- disputes what they say and then you demonize those people and this serves to galvanize the in group so, they are so driven by loathing and, and hatred of the people who are criticizing them or questioning what they're doing. And they are simply trying to save lives, for God's sake, you know. And these awful people outside are claiming that they are telling lies and so on. Uh, you know, this did, and this, this process was enact was created. And in a certain sense, we in the resistance became that out group, you see. Because and then because that we were anti vaxxers we were COVID deniers. You know, we were far-right extremists and so on. It's amazing, you know, that I was uh, uh, a journalist in Ireland for 35 years, and nobody thought my middle name was Adolf. You know, Uh, and then suddenly I became a far-right extremist. You know, like just because I disagreed with what this government and the the so-called doctors and scientists were doing. Um, but there's another aspect there, Hermann, of, of, of what you're saying, which is interesting because it just talked You know, the period you talked about there in those wars and in the 70s and so on. I think I, I, I wrote an article recently based on a, on a thesis written by a, a German philosopher called Michael Esfield, and his whole theory was really interesting because he was talking about that what we consider our, our constitutional republics and our liberal democracy, and, you know, our Western values, all these things that we keep been hearing about. He says, in a, what he's essentially saying is that these were fictions of the Cold War, that, that uh, you know, those things were necessary in order to provide points of contradistinction with Soviet totalitarianism. So we bigged ourselves up, as it were, you know, as we are the free West, we are the people who can do all these things, you have freedom of speech. But as soon as the, the Berlin Wall came down, he says, this started to dissolve because there was no longer any necessity to differentiate ourselves from the Soviet bloc. And gradually, the liberal democracy started to change. And this has been going on for a long time, and in fact, you can see it in, in the the you could see it in the way that the liberal, the individual liberals, in 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 let us say, and people like I mean, artists and so on. I mean, there was a very interesting moment there, short maybe a year before or less, maybe about a year and a year before, uh, uh, the French philosopher Bernard Henri Lavi uh, headed up a group of art, what he called, uh, European artists and intellectuals. Or writers and intellectuals, and they were decrying the danger of populism to democracy. Populism was the great danger to to, to our democratic values and so on. And all these writers signed this petition and, and they were all interviewed and it becomes a big deal and and I wrote about it at the time saying, these guys don't believe in democracy at all, it's all nonsense. And sure enough, a year later, not a single word was heard of them. In fact, Bernard-Henri Levy wrote a, had, a, had a, a little book ready to go when the pandemic started, warning us about the dangers of this terrible virus and so on and so on and so on, Philosoph- in a philosophical way, of course. Uh, and similarly, are the right. The there's one particular writer in Ireland, Mr. Colum Tobin, a novelist, like who was who's one of the sign. He, the, he signed this petition. And the last I saw of him, he was being interviewed on, on YouTube, and he was talking about how he went around the subway in New York during the pandemic, you know, rounding upon on people who weren't wearing masks and, and, and you know, intimidating them and so on. This is liberalism now. And so this is some, uh, P- P- Professor Esfield, this German, has really, I think, put his finger on something that we yet have to get the bottom of. He, I'm not saying he doesn't really explore it in its depth, uh, but he's basically saying that the, the, the fault lines of this were already beginning to appear, were started to appear after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So in a certain sense, the, you know, the cracks in the wall became the cracks in our liberal democracies. And, and uh, I think that's a very interesting uh, concept. And I think it's one that we, we need to think about more because certainly it explains the way that, you know, there was a strange way that uh, almost on one morning in, in, in March or April uh, 2020, we woke up and every single liberal in the world was on side with the COVID. And only the conservatives, the right-wingers or whatever we're supposed to be called, I don't even like these terms, were actually doing the kinds of things and saying the kinds of things that liberals used to do and say in response to tyranny. So this is really interesting.
3: Uh, Interesting is also, for example, um, as you mentioned, 1989, uh, for example, because since the 80s, we have, for example, environmental protection as a subject. And uh, here in Germany, we have a constitutional protection ministry. And this Constitutional Protection Ministry has nothing to do with real constitution. <laughs> it is only, let's say, it is run by someone of, the, of, of a party and he can implement the ideology of his party in this institutional uh, constitutional protection system. It's very dangerous, in my opinion. Mm. And um, an ex-president of this... Um, Institution said that um, that in the 1960s already the Communist Party, the KGB, discussed how they can implement dictatorships in the West, and the and the idea was anti-racism and environmental protection. Yes, and the well, climate change is the top of it. The, the, he said the one. Who, Im- who invented the climate change is the king of all, because this is, uh, this is really, uh, this is the idea so that everyone can, um, can every- this is the idea where everyone can be
1: cut off his freedom rights for the greater good. Exactly right, the common good. You see, that's a very interesting thing. The way that that concept has been perverted as well in this this whole period. But another factor there is a cultural shift in our a shift in our cultures and way, and in journalism as well, uh, away from the idea of the 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 kind of general intellectual dog's body, if you like, that you might say. You know, the, the idea that the, the person, the the philosopher, uh, or indeed the journalist, as as a mediator between voices you know that when i started in journalism i mean one of your our primary jobs was to go out you know when a a complex subject would come you know which you know perhaps i wouldn't be qualified to to understand or to but then i would be told well you have to go and interview such and such a scientist or such and such a doctor and find out what is his position and then you would have to study the, the what he had written and the subject and get a broad grasp of, of the facts and the, the concepts in it and then go and try to find a way of explaining in ordinary language what the, what the, this expert was saying But what has happened to us in recent times is that actually that that role of a journalist had already gone more or less because more and more you know the op-ed writers the, the, the editors were employing experts to write, expert opinions in the in the opinion pages right so the the, the, the journalist was taken out of the equation and one of the the, the the other factors in relation to that is now that what we actually have is a culture of exper- expertise but it's an array of experts about different things about tiny little slivers of expertise in a particular discipline and they are whether it's immunology or you know epidemiology or whatever it would be and This person's word in this area is absolute, unquestionable, unless you have an an equivalent qualification that you can then challenge this person. But that's not commonplace because there is a kind of a a committee of expertise in which each expert agrees not to, uh, you know, uh, uh, dog doesn't bite dog, as they say. But what, what you actually have then is a dialogue of the deaf. Because between these expertise, because each one speaks about a particular aspect of of, of reality of which the others are not experts. And so each one speaks uninterrupted, unquestioned. And the ordinary person is required simply to listen, has no right to challenge, has no right to use his or her common sense, or life experience to say, well, that sounds like nonsense to me. Well, they say, well, you're not an immunologist. Where did you go to? Where did you get your degree? That's the end of it. And this is a really perverted form of culture because it essentially, it denies the the capacity of the human being. For example, in the context of health, if you think about it, I'm 68 years of age. I am an expert in only one thing, but I am an expert in that. It is in the functioning of this body for 68 years. I have studied it for for most of those years maybe not for the first four or five, but from then on I was watching very carefully. So I understand what happens in my body, but that has no value in this discussion. And so we have a culture which is doomed to imprison us in the expertise of other people and then the logics which can then be turned into laws in order to compel us to do things that are against our interests and which we know in our hearts and our souls are wrong, and wrong for us. But we are powerless to question them. And that, this almost became an example of that. Not entirely. It did to, to a high degree in, in relation to the, the uh, uh, injection business that was happening there. You know, uh, But uh, uh, this, this was a, has become a lethal situation, precisely out of that, because nobody could question this other than people who were already paid for who are already bought and paid for, and they were not going to question it. So, you know, there are so many aspects of our situation that we uh, have yet to begin to drill into and, and to really consider, you know, that all of these uh, phenomena are connected. And you, know, and, you know, again, the media thing, I mean, it's a really interesting thing, you know, that uh, another factor of the media aspect of this is that, you know, there are no consequences any longer for power. Because uh, the journalists are, are silent, so the, the powerful can say what they like, and nobody will question it. Only when the powerless speak are they questioned. People who I would like to
3: them. ask one question before I pass to Grace uh, want to make one comment. The interesting thing is in the seventies, as I said, there, there was an ethic around uh, concerning the journalists, and there were a lot of, uh, let's say, many reports. What went wrong, for example, in the chemical industry? Everything was was shown. Everything was made public in the seventies. And the interesting thing is also Amnesty International works very good. Worked very good, and they described the situation in uh, the torture. They made a torture report, nineteen seventy four. In the torture report, they explained everything, psychological torture and what it is, and and that it it has the intention to break the will of the victim yes and and the interesting thing is that the the measurements what we uh, experienced in the pandemic or pandemic were the same measures which were used in China and North Korea in order to establish a society in the communist state and it was the pro- the most problem is that the people who who lose their own will, who got, uh, uh, whose will is broken, they will become the follower of the torturers and they will start to torture the other people. So this is the reason why we can see that this crazy things all around the globe, especially also concerning fact checkers. And for example, in Germany, we, the Green Party starts now to, to make comments on fa- on on negative things or alternative things so it has become such exponentially because they broke the will of the people already and now they think okay now let's do it completely
1: 100% yes yes i agree i like you see one of the things that's actually obviously happened in this in this period in the last period since say the begin the end of the cold war is that the the, the nature of power in the west has changed utterly Uh, And it has become more uh, like um, almost like an executive uh, um, uh, professional uh, class of uh, manager who have insinuated themselves into uh, powerful supranational organizations who are not elected, who don't need to grub around in in, in the voting uh, booths and so on trying to get uh, uh, approval from the electorate. And, you know, that this, these people are really uh, uh, very sinister because they represent money. Again, going back, they represent moneyed interests, you know, I mean, you can corrupt everything with money, you know, and this is what this is the terrible thing that uh, there you know, you think of most people have need for money and therefore most people are susceptible, you know, unless they are people of a profoundly strong character. To be bought off and, and and silenced or whatever by that by by money in these situations. So uh, you know th- this is a, a thing that we have reached in in our democracies that we never anticipated w- would would poss- would could possibly happen. You know we we thought we were in a certain sense, if I may say so, inoculated against such tendencies because we were aware. You know, through all of the people like Solzhenitsyn had written about this and warned us. You know that the West had this propensity, this susceptibility to become tyrannical. Uh, so did Václav Havel, you know, the same thing. And then, you know, we, we found this very interesting, you know, uh, as, a, as a talking point, you know, oh yes, very interesting point, Mr. Havel. But, you know, he meant it really seriously. He was seriously warning, watch, look what you're doing. And, and we assumed, you see, and I think our power, our leaders assumed that you could, in a sense, have little bits of tyranny you know, Let he play with this kind of slightly more kind of bulgy and, 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 and macho style of politics and not damage the fundamental fabric of your uh, society or, or, or institutions. But of course, you can't do that. And of course, they're playing with fire because they are now unleashing demons in our societies, which cannot be you know, put back in the bottle. And, and I, I greatly fear for the future because already I see the signs in these people of a grotesque uh, malevolence. And and a you know a, a, a disregard for for any kind of protocol or any kind of convention or principle, and really I think a sense of like uh, omnipotence, uh, and a sense that you know, but at the same time a sense that oh yeah well this is the free West so nothing bad will happen here we can do what we like and still nothing bad will happen here. But of course, if you start creating the conditions of Soviet Russia in 1935, in France and and, and Germany and, and Ireland and Britain, you'll very soon end up in Soviet Russia in 1935. You'll very soon end up with your Stalin and all that goes with that. Yeah.
3: yeah, Yes, I agree 100%. Yeah. I don't agree 100% because I, am, I have a friend and he said um, you will not get... You, uh, I asked him whether we get a social state like Soviet Union. So he said No. Because in Soviet Union you have to work very hard, you get a government like Ukraine. So sorry, this was a this was a small joke. Yeah. So I passed yeah. it to James. Well, you know.
1: that's, that's very interesting because that's the, the 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 that's the dichotomy which is often spoken about between uh, Orwell and Huxley. You know that the form of totalitarianism is now that we are enslaved by our own desires and by our own sort of desire to be pampered, and that this is what has suffered. And I think that's true also nevertheless the boot, as our predicted you know the boot grinding down on the human face is waiting for us also and 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 uh you know i think that uh, uh we 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 don't understand that we really don't understand that this is this is central to much of the denial that we're coming across now because a lot of people i think know something is really badly wrong uh, and it, there's an old saying you know about you know uh, the hardest people to wake up are those who are pretending to be asleep. Well, I think that's true. Uh, but I think those people, you know, they, they actually secretly think it doesn't matter. I don't have to do anything because this will all blow over. This is the democratic way. The problem is it no longer is. Yeah.
3: Thank you so much. I pass it to Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
3: Yeah,
4: throughout this, I've often pondered how those that are orchestrating this really understand human nature. You know how we're mostly corruptible in our need for money, and that we're driven by fear, <clears throat> and our fear of death, and that many are lazy. So if you pay them to stay at home, that they'll, you know, they they want to be what the the leaders are, they just understand human nature so completely that they have us in a, in a noose. And we need yes. to wake up to the evilness that's behind it. Like even the forest fires that are taking place all over the world have there is no no um, heart or desire to worry about nature or the animals that are being destroyed or the humans that are being displaced and and they all they use the like you say you know the argument that it's for the greater good so completely that we fall into this pit so easily it's it's really frightening so I mean my my mother taught me that it was human nature if we pay people to stay at home it that was 30, 20, 30 years ago when socialism was starting to take over Canada, that people just won't come to work, that they'll lose their desire to create. And we're seeing that in such a rampant scale now that I don't you said that there was hope. I, I think you know that they they wouldn't succeed in all of this. Could you give us? Maybe your thoughts on that? And
1: well, uh, yes, I, I completely agree about that. that, that you know, the, 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 there is a you know you kind of have to take your hat off in a certain sense to, to the evil of, that is behind all this and to so the machinations and the cunning of it because it shows a profound understanding of the way anticipation of the way that human beings act and will behave in situations that haven't really occurred before in in our societies. You know that the way that you know, for example, people are prepared to believe something even though they, they know the contrary and this is a really interesting phenomenon like whereby you know newspapers can actually and this happened many times in my observation where you know they would the newspapers would tell lies and lies and lies and then they would it, there would be a correction in, in a very low voice voce, you know and and, and about the, these lies but that would also be published and you would think, oh, well, that's the end of it now. They, they are finished. This is just over now. Their, their scam has been discovered. But no, no, no. They would go back to the lie the following day. And it's like that they already had constructed the capacity to understand that if you don't have an ethical fr- press, then people develop a kind of amnesia because they're not sure that they heard something, you know? It's like, because something needs to be repeated, All time. there's a rule in journalism, you know, uh, there is a very interesting three-part, three-part rule in journalism, which is really interesting. Uh, number one, first you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you've told them. And this is about emphasis, repetition and that this is such an essential part of the way we apprehend what is happening in the world you know that we don't quite you think did i hear that maybe because you were half paying attention is did i hear something on the car radio uh, when i was trying to avoid uh, running over a cow you know uh, something like that so you know this is this is so it's really ingenious what they have done and i'm not praising them i'm simply acknowledging that as as you know that to give literally the devil his due the hope, I think, is, it comes from, to me, is that in the world, this world wouldn't be here if evil could prevail, ultimately. We wouldn't be here speaking. We are, Our presence here is a witness to the existence of God. You know, that, that we, have, we have been given life, we have had our lives, we have lived lives, joyful lives, you know, lives of whatever, pain and so on and so on, that, that one expects. But nevertheless life you know and life enhancing existences that that we you know remember and, and celebrate and that's really i think what we need to remember that you know good prevails it's not that good can prevail good good will prevail the question though is will we do what is necessary and this is the really mysterious part uh, from my point of view and in my experience because you know very often, people feel, well, you know, there's so little we can do. You know, what can we do? We can, you know, have a, a podcast, have a, an interview, have a, write an article, you know, have a protest, carry a placard, you know. But really, maybe, maybe only five people will see my placard, you know. And so, what's the point in that? And I, I really, long time ago, began to realize that uh, it's not about numbers. It's about the gesture of doing, the, 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 the act of doing, of resistance, um, that in a strange way, it isn't that we have to catch to, 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 to reach millions of people. We can reach one person, and that one person may then afterwards go and reach millions of people, or do something else, or reach two more people who eventually will, will result in a million people hearing, hearing something that they need to hear. Uh, and, and that, that in, a, in, a, in a, what I would call a, a spiritual context, I think it translates as, you know, that we simply do what we, have to, what we feel is the right thing today. Like that, It's as simple as that. And this may be one little thing. And this applies to your personal life and your own personal problems or to the world's problems. You know, is there one thing you need to do today to progress whatever difficulty you are having in order to resolve a situation? to write an email, to make a phone call, something that you find unpleasant or, you know, do it and then live the rest of your day with a happy heart. That's, that's the spiritual way. And this is really related to, I think, the great thesis of, uh, thesis, uh, I mentioned him before, Václav Havel, the, the great uh, Czech philosopher who became the president of Czechoslovakia and, and subsequently the Czech Republic when the, when the country split up. Uh, very, very brilliant man and a self-educated man. You know, he, he wasn't educated in the system. Like He, he wasn't a, a, an academic. Uh, he was a playwright and a philosopher, and he, he was really uh, extraordinary. But he had this wonderful concept of the power of the powerless, which he, he talked about is really uh, to refuse, to simply refuse in the most polite and quiet way. Say, no, thank you. I won't do it. Thank you. You know, uh, like an example he gave was uh, the, the greengrocer in Prague, you know, who had a sign in the Soviet era, and he's among the vegetables in his window, which said, workers of the world unite. Now, he, Havel says, of course, the greengrocer doesn't believe in this sentiment at all. He has this sign there simply to, for a quiet life. Right? To, so the authorities don't bother him. And, and Havel simply suggests that the thing to do for the Green to do is to simply take the sign away, to remove the sign from the window. And that, that's what we all have to do, to remove our signs from our windows that, that acquiesce in the tyranny that seeks to destroy our lives and the lives of our children and our children's children. That we say, no, thank you. Not today, thank you. And I think that, that is the power of the powerless. And that's all we have to do. We don't have to move mountains. The mountains will move themselves or God will move the mountains when, we, when, when our actions of refusal reach a cr- certain critical mass. Uh, this has always been my experience. And that in, in, in my life, I found that when I am in a difficult situation, you know, maybe a court situation or something like that, which I tend to be in a lot of, a lot of the time. And it's very stressful and very, you know, frightening in many ways. Uh, but I, I simply hand it over i say okay well i can't handle this i can only do what i have to do i can fill out i can write up the papers i can turn up that's about it i can't take responsibility for the outcome i can't change the outcome i can't really influence other than and 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 but what i have found is that you know when i do that by turning up by having the finding in myself the courage to do what needs to be done what is necessary and showing up that is enough. I can be completely useless in court. I can make a complete mess of everything in front of the judges. They can laugh at me. And still, the victory will be tremendous. I don't mean that I will literally have a victory. I may lose. But the outcome of the entire thing will change. Everything is changed within the entrails of the process, something miraculous happens. And I believe that that's why I am hopeful that if we keep trying, if we keep doing what we are driven to do, to protect our children, most of all, I think, most of us, yeah, and, and to protect their, their, their homelands, and, and to make sure that we when we leave, this when we shuffle off this mortal coil, that we leave behind a secure place for them to rest their heads. I think then we will win. We cannot lose in those circumstances.
4: Beautifully said, John. Thank so you. much to absorb there, and... If we just each become uncorruptible in our own hearts, then we will change yes. what's happening.
0: Yeah. Yes,
1: I agree. I agree completely. That's right. Yes. And, and that's the way to do that is action, really. Action, I think, of course, and prayer, but action Action is prayer, is a different kind of prayer, you know, that in sense, you know, I, I, I'd almost say that if given an alternative between praying and taking action, I would take the action and say the prayers later.
4: Right, because so many sit by and yeah. think that you know we'll
1: leave it we'll, to Jesus. You know, yes. Doesn't work like that in my experience. <laughs> he doesn't like to be left in, uh, carrying the baby. You know, <laughs>
4: right? yeah. The warrior needs to come out. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to pass you to Grace. You may have some questions.
0: Oh, John, do you would you like to please invite our audience on and where they can support you and other other more things that you wanted to share? But our audience grateful they for what you have spent and shared this time and also for what you've been doing. But please continue.
1: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Grace. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity, which has been tremendous, really. It's, I think it's been a very interesting exchange. And we have touched on very important things. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not always that you find that you know magic um, to, to touch things in just the right way. And I felt we, we somehow managed that today. Uh, I, I, you can follow me on, on my Substack page. It's uh, John Waters Unchained. Or Johnwaters.substack.com is the the actual email address, or the yeah the email address, or the, the link, and uh, uh, that's really all that 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 I I do at the moment. Uh, I write occasionally for an Irish newspaper, which is uh, the Irish Light, which is a. a, 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 a a resistance newspaper, yeah, which comes out once a month or so. Uh, other than that, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't do any journalism. I never, I have nothing to do with mainstream media or anything like that. So, but I am to be found on Substack. I write other long articles. I, I, I don't apologise for that. I think it's, it's, it's something. It's where I come from, you know, in a way. I used to, in the beginning, wrote very long articles about you know, musicians and uh, singers and uh, songwriters and so on. And then I became a political writer and the re- articles remained long. And then they became shorter when I was at the Irish Times, which I think was actually a form of censorship. Uh, but now I am free again. That's what I mean by ch- I am unchained. So unfortunately for some people, do not like long articles and they object. But, you know, I think it's, it's important that also, and I think something you said at the very beginning, Grace, you know, that, that we are, I picked up something that you said, which suggested, which reminded me of this, I don't know your exact words, but it was the idea that we are, in a sense, speaking to the future. I think something like that came across to me. And I think that's very much how I feel, that, that, that we are here in this place, in this beleaguered place, fighting in this corner, and we are sending out messages, not for help in the present, but to the future. To warn people of what can happen, and hopefully we will have resolved it, and, and we will be able to live to tell the tale. But nevertheless, that we leave down these mm. paper trail that they can follow to ensure that nothing like this is ever allowed to happen again in in in, in our countries, in our civilizations, and and uh, that's that's kind of what drives me more than anything. You know, I it's, you know I do obviously want to connect with people now, and that's part of it, but. More than that, I want to connect with those, as I keep talking about, my children's children's children, uh, because they will be baffled, I think, that we were able to have freedom, have the greatest uh, freedom of civilization that ever existed in the world and give it away in a matter of months. How did that happen? And how do we make sure that it doesn't ever happen again?
0: Thank you, John. And you said it beautifully. That's why and in those ways of saying chosen words, that's what we live for. Yeah. And just as you said, we just show up. We just have to let go of what the outcome may be, but we do what we need to do right now.
1: (laughs) It's, It's so simple, really. You know, when you ask yourself, what can I do? Well, what do I need to do today? Don't, don't think I need to save the world. That, that's too big. Don't, don't do that. You know, I need to go to the post office and, and buy a stamp to send a letter to the prime minister. But today, just the stamp will be enough. And then I can go to the park and sit in the sun and an easy conscience, you know. I don't need to rush about that either. You know, so what I mean is that, you know, we live our lives and in the course of this, we, 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 we express our refusal. And that, that is everything.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And you did say in one of your well, po- articles or podcasts, they said, yeah, you do your best for the during the daytime and then live the rest and live your best life. In the yes, air. yes.
1: That's the, the fault of that, yes.
0: So thank you to everyone, and thank you to Jane Hartmut Roy, and of course John. Thank you so much. We will be honored to have you again in the future. Uh, trust me, we if we can have you all the time, sure. But we'll give you a little break, and which I'll reach out again. And thank please you so much. to all right. the audience and thank share this.
1: Thank you very and- much, everybody. It was so nice. I, I really enjoyed talking to you all, and and. Uh, Uh, I'm so happy to have uh, been here and be able to do this with you. Thank you. Thank you too. It was a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you.